Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Joining me today is British guitarist, producer, and three-time Grammy Award winner, five-time Juno Award winner, Mr. Chris Burkett. Chris, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for inviting me, Brent. Uh, the first I'd like to say, are we sitting comfortably? <laughs> well, then we'll begin. That's so great. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you know, Platinum Blonde used that at the very beginning of uh, It Doesn't Really Matter, their first single in Canada. Oh, cool. I bet they don't have the British accent, though. Uh, Mark Holmes is English, oh, I believe. Cool. Okay. But, yeah. Well, it's not him. It's a woman who says it. Because it. it has to be said in a real, you know, a Queen's English Are we sitting comfortably? Like, you know, yeah. To get the English accent, you have to pretend. One has to pretend that there's hot potato in one's mouth <laughs> then you get the perfect sound that's that's what they call received pronunciation right yeah yeah, yeah. like bbc yeah. kind of yeah it's more like uh, residual colonialism but you know <laughs> we're getting to that right now that's so funny wow so did you know that that was platinum blondes no i didn't oh yeah no, i just remember that expression i used to listen to a radio show when i was a kid and that's how it used to begin you know they used to say the guy used to say are are, are we sitting comfortably then we'll begin. You know, and that's, I can't remember what show it was, but if anybody out there knows it, then just let me know. Wow. That's a cool piece of trivia. Yeah, mm-hmm. Platinum Blonde has a woman say that right before uh, their first single, Doesn't Really yeah. Matter, which I believe might be the kickoff track to their first record. Yeah, oh, so cool. Just, and, and I heard that when I was 15. I just thought, oh, what is that all about? But he's English, so it makes sense. Yeah. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I don't know their music, but uh, I've heard of them. They're great. Yeah, I was a big fan. Uh, okay. Thank you for coming in. You have got one or two stories to tell, my friend. You have collaborated with all manner of people and band. So you've got, uh, Talking Heads, Led Zeppelin, Allison Moyer, The Pogues, Steve Earle, so many others over yeah, the years. Yeah, yeah, this goes on and on. Yeah. I've been making records for 40 years. So that's, uh, I won't tell you how old I am, but you can, <laughs> you can guess. <laughs> But you know, I'm uh, you know, I'm in Canada now, and I when I arrived here in 2012, I promised myself I would get my music off the back shelf and into the ears of the public because mm-hmm. I've been writing songs all my life, you know? yeah. And uh, I've always I got sidetracked into you know record production because I loved it, and uh, ended up you know helping a lot of other people to realize their dreams. And uh, when I came here to Canada, I thought, well, uh, I should actually get my own music out there finally so mm-hmm. I, I took every gig i could get when i arrived good for you you know i just played everywhere yeah and uh, i still do so yeah. you know i'm playing gigs all the time in toronto and I, just, I just love it i love the multicultural mosaic of culture in this city it's just wonderful yeah it is fantastic and there's a lot of stories about that but we'll save that for podcast number three or four or something wow <laughs> i got a lot of stories to tell you <laughs> <laughs> so you've got this is a the list that you brought in is almost like a culmination of of your production and musical career thus far the hi, the the big highlights at least right yeah it's a it's a kind of chronological order of events of some of the highlights of my ascension through the music business you know mm-hmm. I, you know I, I, you don't I don't know whether you know this but I started my life professional music life on the streets of London as a homeless person. I didn't know that. Well, I ran away from home at 19. I, I grew up in a kind of miserable situation with my sister. We had a really wicked stepmother who treated us really badly and we got a lot of emotional abuse. So I made it my, my you know, I was determined to get out of 
that situation. So okay. as soon as I finished my electronics degree, which I, which I did uh, to really to keep my father happy, uh, I was with the Royal Aircraft Establishment in Farnborough. I did an electronics degree for aircraft electronics. As soon as I finished that, I hightailed out of there, got on the train, and I had nowhere to go. But I just slept on the streets for a while and just worked my way up just by going to every audition I could go to. Wow. And that's how I ended up in uh, in Love Affair through an audition. Unbelievable. Band, that was my first professional band, you know. You started playing guitar when you were six, I think. Is uh, that right? I start, yeah, I started playing. I think I was playing the guitar in the womb, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was much space in there. <laughs> but I actually, uh, I was desperate to play guitar. I was kind of born uh, to play guitar, I think. Uh, we didn't have any money, obviously. So I made my first guitar from scraps of wood. From, which I found in the garbage oh. uh, when I was eight years old. Wow. And it's kind of sounded like a koto. It's like, ding, ding, ding. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. somebody gave me some banjo strings and I put that on it. And, and I had uh, matchsticks for frets and stuff. No but, way. Uh, but it was a musical instrument. And I managed to, you know, start playing it. But I was left-handed. So when I was 12, I bought my first electric guitar, saved up my, my pocket money and okay. just got this... Um, guitar called a top 20 mm. from from japan and it was a copy of a stratocaster and the left-handed model was twice as much as the right-handed model so i ordered the right-handed model and just switched around and learned to play right-handed no and i'm so way. glad i did that's unbelievable well you try and find a left-handed guitar at a jam session you know it's like oh for sure most unlikely so i'm so happy that and when i play drums i play i play right-handed drum kit left-handed so i play open style so you're completely ambidextrous then, because you're yeah. left-handed. Yeah, and I play bass. You know, the, I, I can't play guitar or bass or any of those instruments the other way now. It's, I've, I've lost the, you know, the technique which I had when I was eight. But I'm, uh, you know, I switched around when I was twelve and then started learning every lick I could get my hands on. You know, I was a, I was a big wow. Deep Purple fan and Yes and Gentle Giant and all those wonderful bands from the seventies. I was just totally yeah. into that. I was a big Frank Zappa fan. I, I learned the whole solo of. Willie the Pimp by ear. Just, no you know, have you heard Willie the Pimp? It's, yeah, like a, yeah. it's about eight minute guitar solo, which never repeats itself. Yeah. So, you know, there's some great players that influence my, my playing. And then, uh, so, so the, so the, anyway, the, the love affair story, I shall tell you first, cause that's kind of one of that's, I could say that was my first professional uh, engagement. So now this, this is your first song on your list here, Love yeah, Affair, Everlasting it. Love. And just yeah. to intro this for the listeners, you see Everlasting Love, you might not know it to to hear it, but like the song goes, Everlasting Love. Yeah. It, now yeah, you know it, it, right? It's that melody. Oh, burn up your eyes, then you realize, here I stand with my everlasting love. You That's know, it. You know, everybody knows that song, actually, funny oh, enough, yeah. even now. Yeah. And of course, there's been some remixes done and you know, reissues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was the guitarist in the band. Uh, guitarist and backing singer at the time and uh so the funny the story about this band was uh we were making uh so much money you know we were a successful pop band we're touring all over you know england scotland wales ireland everywhere constantly touring for tax reasons in those days i don't know whether it's the same now but in those days the um the if you earned above a certain amount of money you get into the super tax bracket okay and so, and essentially, you're just giving away almost everything you're earning to the hmm. tax man. Right? So, so, that's where the so what we used to, how we used to bypass that is uh, people who are in that bracket used to 
leave the country for three months a year and then you're exempt from a super tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may have changed the law now, probably did, probably closed that loophole. But at the time in the 70s when I was in Love Affair, I um, we had to go to Guernsey, which is uh, at that time, it's like um, Andorra. It's like some of the places in the world that are tax exiled places. right? So Guernsey is a small island in between Britain and France in the English Channel. Uh, and our agent booked us at a club there for three months you know, paying a everlasting love for three months. You know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so I think it was the second night we were on stage. Uh, it's a big club. I looked down in front of the stage. There's a big long table racked with champagne and every kind of drink you could think of. <laughs> I, I looked down at the people sitting at the table and I thought, that looks like Jimmy Page and that looks like Robert Plant. So I went down after I set, I went down to introduce myself because I, I was a big Zeppelin fan, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think it was Jimmy said, uh, you know, hey, look, we're here for three months on a tax exile. <laughs> what a coincidence, <laughs> are we? <laughs> and he said, would, you know, would you mind if we come up and jam with you? Because we've got nothing else to do. We're bored, shiteless, you know. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. French. And so, um, of course, I said, yeah, wicked, you know. And so I got to, uh, I had the, you know, the privilege of jamming Led Zeppelin for three months in the, in the club in Guernsey almost so every great. night. And of course it was like endless 12 bar blues, you know, and great big solos. And, but, yeah. but John Bonham is my, probably my favorite ever rock drummer. Mm. Now he died, unfortunately, but, uh, he's, he's really good. So he told me a story, which I think might, I could share with you that John Bonham didn't like, uh, microphones. He his drum mm. kit. Okay. He hated them. So, so I said, well, how'd you get that wicked drum sound, you know, on your records? And he said, well, they just put one mic in the in the room and, and they, we go into a nice room, which is either a, a slate room or a polished wood room, which is a really nice sound. Put one mic in front of the kit and that's it. That's how you get the John Bonham drum sound. Really? And it makes a lot of sense because uh, my, you know, I'm, a, I'm a recording engineer too. I learned a lot about recording mm-hmm. techniques. And if you just get one mic in a room, the, di- the diaphragm is responding exactly to the dynamics of, in the room that's shifting. Okay. Uh, and it's so... If you put that up a mono output, you're getting the whole energy of that diaphragm moving mm-hmm. with that sound that's in the room. Wow. If you put multiple mics up, you're getting multiple diaphragms all moving and interacting and putting each, each other out of phase. So the more mics you put up, the more distant the drum drums get. You know? that, so that so I learned sense. that uh, I learned that lesson from John Bonham. You know? Wow. Well, he he also used to play with four sticks sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, I got a little funny personal story about John Bonham. Where I was in the washroom once while we were doing this three months in Guernsey mm-hmm. thing, and uh, this press, the guy from a melody maker, uh, you know, paparazzi guy, came in the washroom and started photographing him having a pee. Okay, and, uh, and John was like a strong guy, you know. Mm-hmm. So he grabbed hold of the guy by the literally by the ankles and tipped him up, held him upside down, and said, "Don't, don't photograph me," you know. And they, all the, I remember all the change falling out of this guy's pocket and rattling <laughs> on the, the mushroom floor. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so I've got some really good memories of that, that time. You know. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Yeah, yeah, there's a few extra words which I won't repeat for this podcast, but you know, they, they came out as well. <laughs> That's awesome. So Everlasting Love is a huge hit. And then you go back to uh, Britain, presumably. Yeah, it's a, a, there's a lot of details in between. I was in a soul band in Germany for many years mm. before I joined Love Affair. You know, we we were best soul band in Germany. So 
the agent asked us if we would be the backing band for Rufus Thomas and Gene Knight and King Floyd, all the bigger Memphis artists. So, oh, so wow. I got to play guitar for Rufus Thomas and Ann Peebles. That's awesome. And so Ann, Ann Peebles, was, uh, she's from Memphis too. Mm-hmm. She had a really big hit called I Can't Stand the Rain. Yep. And uh, we got to play, I got to play guitar for her at the opening of Bieber's, a really expensive club in London. Um, it's in, uh, right in the center of London. And John Lennon was in the audience. So John Lennon wow. heard me playing guitar, but I didn't have to, privilege to meet him he's, he's actually one of my favorite songwriters ever so that's incredible yeah but that wow. was pre-love affair and then i then i you know came back from germany went to an audition joined love affair mm-hmm. and the bass player from love affair his name was dave guscott very nice man he heard of a band that had just been signed to tony visconti's good earth records mm-hmm. tony visconti is uh for those who don't know is a producer for david barry mm-hmm. and mark bolan and uh, lots of lots of great acts, Moody Blues. I think he did he even produced one of my favourite Gentle Giant albums, mm-hmm. Octopus. I think that was him on that one. Mm-hmm. So uh, this band had just signed a deal, and they're looking for a guitar player. So I went to the audition, and they I was usually every time I went to an audition, I usually got it, which is pretty cool. So they they are in, offered me a a gig playing with a band called Omaha Sheriff, right? Which is kind of play on words, you know, Omar yeah. Sharif, Omaha Sheriff. Yeah. We have a song called The Sheriff from Omaha on one of the albums. Mm. So I got into uh, playing with Omaha Sheriff and working with Tony Visconti for two albums. And I was fascinated by Tony's work. He's a really, really good engineer and great arranger. Mm-hmm. Plays really great uh, strings too. He's a great string arranger and a bass player as well. So I was watching him all the time and constantly asking questions, bugging him, you know, what's that button do and what's what you're doing there? And it must have irritated him a bit. But anyway, uh, he became my mentor to be getting to record production. That's incredible. And he has a quote once, he did an interview once and he said, oh, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually in his book. He's, he did a book about his, uh, I think it's called uh, Inventory or something. This is, you know, biography. Is that There's a quote in that book that says, uh, oh yeah, Chris, Chris Burkett, you know, is, um, I taught him everything he knows about record production, <laughs> but not everything I know. Yeah, <laughs> <funny. laughs> I'll put that quote on my site, actually. <laughs> All right, so that is your second song, Omaha Sheriff. Yeah, uh, I, picked, uh, I picked Clothes Horse because I was singing on that one. We had two singers in Omaha Sheriff, Paul Muggleton and me. So we shared vocals. And Clothes Horse was one of my very early recorded vocals, you know, was kind of really young you know it's only like 24 or something mm-hmm. so um uh, but i quite like the it sounds a bit like phil collins people say i sound like so either phil collins or peter gabriel when i sing mm. but, or sting but you know it's uh it's because i you know i i work with peter gabriel so you know i've had a connection with him which mm-hmm. is another, which leads me to another story which i'll tell you in a minute okay but uh so anyway the visconti connection was really strong for me and I subsequently invited him to play on um, my uh, f- my third solo album called Freedom, which I recorded in Paris. And he plays bass on two of the songs wow. on, that, on that album, on a song called Call Me and um, One Step Closer. So that's Tony playing on those two tracks. Wow, that's yeah. great. Yeah, it's cool. So you get to show off your newfound uh, production skills on your next song, Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You. You produced this tune. Yeah, that's right. The story behind uh, that, I'd already done two tracks, mixed two tracks for Sinead's debut album, The Lion and the Cobra. I mixed two tracks. One was called Mandinka. Mm. One was called 
put it I on. I love that song. Yeah. No one knows that song. Oh, it's, I found it on YouTube a while ago, and it's, it sounds really good. That is a fantastic, like, nobody yeah. knows, you know, everybody knows, like, nothing compares to you and, yeah. and motion and stuff. But Mandinka is a great tune yeah. that no one seems to know. I do know Mandinka. Mandinka. So awesome. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah, it's a little punk kind of song, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so, Sinead obviously really liked the sound I got when I mixed that track. And, and I was working as a in-house producer at that time for Ensign Records. Ensign Records signed like Bob Geldof, so I got to work with him through there. Cool. Uh, and Buffy St. Marie, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Nigel Grange, the late Nigel Grange, who was, um, he passed away a couple of years ago. He he was the, you know, the active founder member of Ensign Records. Mm-hmm. He, w- he called me at, uh, one day and he said, I want you to meet this, you know, this girl, this young Irish girl I've signed. And uh, he's always in Dublin looking for talent, you know. Mm-hmm. So he came back with, Sinead O'Connor. She's only about 18 or something at the time. Wow. And, uh, and he said, Oh, can you mix a couple of tracks off a new album? Cause he liked the way I mixed stuff. So I did uh, those two tracks. And then, and then I got a call of, you know, a couple of years later and, uh, Nigel said, Oh, I need you desperately. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, Sinead started this album, this new album with Nelly Hooper, who was a kind of flavor of the month guy, you know, soul to soul and all that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time. And, uh, she said, but they can't get on. After two days, Sinead walked out and out the studio mm. and she doesn't want to work with him anymore. So can you take over the production? I said, okay. So we, you know, we did, uh, nothing compares to you and the whole album. Um, I do not want what I haven't got. Yes. Uh, really good stuff. So uh, my funny story, I've got lots of funny stories about Sinead, but I'll t- <laughs> tell one that nobody knows. I was, do- I was recording, uh, nothing compares to you, the song with her actually. In uh, Westside Studios in London. Okay. Sinead came in. We put the track down, and uh, I didn't. Bo- I didn't put a bass on it. I don't know if anybody's ever noticed that song. It's one of the few hits I've made, or it's one of the few hits in the world that don't have a bass on it. Really? Yeah. There's no bass on it. It's just a just a kick and a snare drum sampled. Hmm. So Sinead came in and did a one take vocal on "Nothing Compares to You," and then she said, "I want to double track it." Mm-hmm. So I said, "Okay, right." So she went in, double tracked it perfectly. And that's the vocal that appeared on the record. No way. But uh, it was a difficult, technically it's a really difficult album to make because Sinead had this bee in her bonnet about compressors. Mm. For some reason, somebody told her that compressors were fake, you know, limiters, you know. Okay, yeah. You know, we all use them, right, in the radio. And everything. I do, yeah. And uh, even if you put your song out on the radio, it's going to get compressed anyway, whether you like it or not. But Sinead used to put this big sign on the desk, used to come in in the mornings, no effing compressors. <laughs> <laughs> So, so it was very, very difficult because she had uh, what you call negative mic technique. Okay. You know, when most people sing, they, they you know, they, they, they get, if they're quiet, they come right into the mic, you know. Yeah. It's been seven hours and 15 days, you know. And yep. then if they go, nothing compared, you know, they back off, right? She yeah. used to do the opposite. Oh. Uh, so without any compressors, you can imagine that vocal on that record, which is a, which yeah. is a multi-million selling hit record. Yeah. It's all distorted. And when I mixed it, I had to ride the EQ to filter out the breaking up crunchy no distortion way. at the 4K region. Yeah. Her screaming into the mic on the loud bits. So, oh, wow. so it's a really, really tricky. Yeah. No kidding. But, but the, uh, the front, the main story about that is that while we were working on the album, this, this guy used to come in with a pair of sunglasses in the, in the studio. And I was always chuckled about that. Why is somebody wearing a pair of sunglasses in a dark studio? You know, mm-hmm. uh, so he'd come in every day and sit behind me at the desk. I was working on this big SSL console 
And he wouldn't say a word. And then he just, we came in with Sinead, sat at the back of the room, went out with Sinead. So one day I thought, I wonder who this person is. You know, and I thought it might be, uh, I knew it wasn't her manager because Faulkner O'Kaley was managing her. Mm-hmm. And I knew him really well. So I went up to him one day and said, excuse me asking, you know, but uh, who are you? And he says, oh, uh, I'm Peter Gabriel. No. <laughs> I've been sitting with Peter Gabriel for, in the studio for weeks. So I didn't know it was him. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I don't know whether he's going out with Sinead at the time, but they were really close. And, uh, and then I subsequently did some uh, a tour with Peter Gabriel, Sinead and Sting. I helped out on the uh, live sound. Yeah. Tour, the tour to raise money for the Kurd- Kurdish people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that was my um, one of my Sinead stories. <laughs> that is great. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay, so from there we go to Steve Earle and Johnny Come Lately. Yeah, that was another Nigel Grange connection. I was working, I was co-producing a band called The Bible. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Steve Steve Earle was in town, and I don't know, we met, and Nigel introduced me to Steve Earle, and he was working on his album at the time. The song Copperhead Road, you probably know. Yeah, definitely. Well, I was in the studio with him when he, he played me that song on mandolin when he's writing it. No He way. said, what do you think of this song, Chris? And I was, and he played the ding, 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 you did, ding, 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 you did, ding, ding, you know, that we can yeah. But uh, anyway, they asked me to, um, if I'd work on his album. I, I, I pr- programmed and played percussion on uh, You Belong to Me, mm-hmm. which is uh, one of the songs on his, on Copperhead Road. The, the most interesting track was a song called Johnny Come Lately. That was recorded by the Pogues. Okay. Steve Earle just, he was a roots man. He just loved, cause he's a, you know, he's a country rock artist, right? Mm-hmm. So he always wanted to work with the Pogues because they're like this Irish roots, you know, yeah. kind of way, you know, most of the music in America probably came from Ireland, you know, yeah. that, that type of music anyway, country music. So Steve has, um, a love for the Irish music and the Pogues. So he invited the Pogues to record, uh, Johnny Come Lately. Wow. And we did it in uh, Livingston Studios in London. And there's a, there's a video of a making of, which uh, you folks should check out on the web. Just go Steve Earl and the Pogues, Johnny Come Lately on uh, YouTube. Mm-hmm. And you'll see me as a young engineer, really thin, <laughs> with some hair, which I don't have anymore, <laughs> uh, working with recording that song. Wow. And uh, in those days, I was, I was working, I was a kind of flavor of the month engineer producer. So... Everybody wanted me to do stuff. I was doing literally 48-hour sessions without sleep sometimes. Oh, wow. I was working with the guy. Uh, what's his name now? Um, anyway, I was doing. I was up for literally 48 hours without sleeping. Wow. Everybody else was like doing cocaine and stuff, and I, I was not into drugs at all. I was doing the homemade salads full of garlic <laughs> to keep me awake. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so um, the Pogues, uh, it was a good record. I just remember... Uh, Shane coming in, uh, who's a banjo player and the singer, mm-hmm. he came in with a huge bottle of whiskey in his in the morning and was you know put it half a cup of whiskey, half a cup of coffee with tons of sugar in it. And that's how he started his day. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, so I've never seen anybody drink so much. So, but the band when I subsequently got to play with them on stage mm-hmm. a few years later when I was living in the south of France, they, oh, came, they did a tour of tour of uh, Europe and I was support act. The Pogues, so, so I met, met them again on stage. It was wow. really cool. Yeah. You do have a lot of great stories. Oh, tons. It's just the beginning. <laughs> this is only the beginning. <laughs> and they're all true, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> all right. The next one is uh, Buffy St. Marie and the song yeah. Star Walker. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's another Nigel Grange 
uh, connection. Okay. From Ensign. He signed Buffy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the funny thing about, one of the funny things about this story is, uh, Nigel phoned me one day and said, Hey, Chris, guess what? You're never going to guess who I've signed. And I said, Who's that? He said, I signed a legend. I, I thought, Wow, I wonder who that is. And yeah. he said, I said, Who is it? And he said, Buffy St. Marie. And I said, Who's really? that? Because, <laughs> you know, she was big in America and Canada, but practically unheard of in England, mm-hmm. you know, except for like Universal Soldier, which is covered by Donovan, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, you know, there's a bit of a, her songs are known, but she wasn't that well known. So, so she's, he said, she's flying in next week. I want you to meet her in, my, in the office. So I met Buffy and we got on really well. She felt really comfortable with me. She'd been out of the business for 15 years uh, because she got blacklisted by the Nixon administration for, for writing, you know, tr- the truth about various political issues. Mm. One of them was about uranium mining and the corruption that goes on on the reservations in the states mm-hmm. and uh, the abuse of the, the land and the people. So so she's been a campaigner for First Nation rights. Anyway, I met her, got on really well. She said, I'm going to do a comeback album. I've been, out of stu- I've been out of the business for 15 years. I've been running the host of Sesame Street. She's the first woman to breastfeed on television with her young young son, Cody. Wow. So she'd been doing stuff, but she hadn't been in the music business. Uh, she said, I want to make an album called Coincidence and Likely Stories. And it's, it's very political. She said, but the problem is I live in Hawaii mm-hmm. and you live in London, Chris. And I said, she said, well, what are we going to do? Because I don't, there's a 12, almost 12 hour time zone. And she doesn't, she, you know, she didn't like the idea of recording with jet lag and all that sort of stuff, you know. And so we came up with this idea of trying to use the internet, uh, which is then there wasn't really a World Wide Web. This is in 1991. There was it was there was a service called CompuServe in those wow. days. Okay, and that was a file you know file sharing service, but it only had the, the maximum bandwidth was a, a megabyte if you're lucky. <laughs> and that was really that. slow. It's done through the old you know the what's it modem yeah. stuff, right? So it's all clicks and words and stuff. <laughs> so uh, so. We couldn't send audio to each other, but Buffy had a, a techie boyfriend called Roger Jacobs, mm-hmm. who's a genius. So he set up a way of getting her musical instrument digital interface, MIDI files, mm-hmm. from her keyboards over to me in London via CompuServe. So all I had to do was mirror the same setup. So in those days, she had like a Proteus, uh, Roland D50, or DX7, Yamaha DX7, all those classic keyboards, you know. Mm-hmm. And she had all that stuff in a studio, home studio in Hawaii. So I got the same keyboards. So I literally had to download the, the files, put them into the, my Atari at the time I was using, I think. Yeah, it was one of the first the sequences. Yeah, the wow. old Atari. It was really good. I made a lot of hits on that. And then there's, voila, all the sounds came up. All the keyboard parts came up. So I recorded them on 24 track. I had a tw- two inch 24 track tape at my mm-hmm. home studio in London. And, uh, I had to, take the tapes to Hawaii to do the overdubs. Now, Buffy didn't have a 24-track machine, so we rented uh, Steely Dan's studio in Maui. So I got to meet Walter Becker, the bass player, Steely Dan. That's cool. Yeah. And that was an interesting <laughs> situation too. Uh, but anyway, the, I loved the ethnicity of Buffy's music. I loved the fact she was always known as a great songwriter, folk folk artist, but she had this passion for First Nation music, you know, the powwow sacred powwow ceremony music and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and i always wanted to i've always been into world music and i've always wanted to get a song that had that captured the spirit of the powwow energy but in a rock sense so she had a song like that called star walker now nigel grange didn't see it 
And he said, she can't be doing that Indian stuff. She's a folk singer. (laughs) (laughs) He's very outspoken, you know. So, So bless his heart. So me and Buffy had to really push him. He wanted to get it off the record. He didn't want it on the record. Hmm. We had to really push to get Star Walker on that on that album. Wow. And then we subsequently remade it on Medicine Songs, which came out last year on True mm-hmm. North Records. I went over there, the fifth album I've done with Buffy. And we did a new cut of Star Walker. Oh, that's cool. Which sounds uh, sounds incredible. So it did come out and we got it got it on the record. And uh, I think it's one of Buffy's best tracks. So go back for a second to, uh, with on the Atari thing. The only Atari I know about is the Atari 2600, which is a video game console. Oh, yes. That's not that one. No, it's before that. So Atari made is uh, the same Atari? Or are we talking about something Yeah, different? no, it's an old, it's one of the first ever sequences. It was a computer, but you could run, uh, you could put a code into it and drive. Uh, I think I was using, it was a very, very early version of Cubase. Wow. Now, Cubase is still around, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's amped up a lot since then, those days. Those days, Cubase was just a simple uh, MIDI, MIDI sequencer, but it's very accurate. So I used to burn a 24-track, a, a code, a SMPTE code, onto track 24 of my two-inch 24-track machine, mm-hmm. and that code would drive an SRC cat. It was a synchronizer. It would read code and turn it into MIDI time code, wow. and that would go into the Atari, and then so it enabled me to drive all these keyboards and samplers uh, from just from the running a code on the 24 track and the synchronization was perfect so so it gave me like 24 track well 23 tracks as one track was the code right gave me as many other tracks as i wanted it just depended on the size of your mixing console how many instruments you wanted to bring in you know so i did a lot of records like that you know it's um it was a good reliable system mm-hmm. of course now audio and midi are are integrated into the same system now. But before it used to be the audio was the analog tape was the audio and the MIDI was driven by the computer code to drive the computer. So and that so that was digital and then analog interplay going on. But now it's all encompassed. I use Pro Tools now and uh it's you know I'm really happy with it. It's, it's the the uh, editing is so much easier than analog. <laughs> I I worked I made two records with Mel Brooks um years ago which one of them was a hit it's called the Hitler rap. Yeah. And, uh, he couldn't sing, he couldn't rap in time. You know, he's, he's a great filmmaker, but he was a terrible rapper. <laughs> so I, I had to, uh, I gave up trying to get him to sing on top of the music. It wouldn't, it, would, it wasn't happening at all. Okay. So I just got him to just rap in free time. Yeah. Say what he wanted to say. You know, the song hit the Hitler rap. I've heard it. Yeah. Came out in a movie called, uh, uh history of the world or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, he goes, hi there, people. You know me. I used to run a little joint called Germany. I was number one, the people's choice. And everybody listened to my mighty voice. You know, my name is Adolf. I'm on the mic. I'm going to hip you to the story of the new Third Reich. Well, it all began down in Munich town, and pretty soon the word started getting around. So I said to Martin Gorman, I said, hey, Marty, why don't we start a little Nazi party? So we had an election, well, kind of, sort of. Before you knew it, hello, new order. You know, so it's wow. about, it's a send-up of the Nazi thing, right? But yeah, it's, yeah. it's very funny. I, I couldn't get him in in time so i just got into to do all that straight onto a quarter inch tape and then i had to use a china graph pencil put the tape in pause and push it in time one two three bang hit this play button that's ahead move it back every line it took me like three or four days of oh, slog wow. and now it's just a piece of cake yeah for sure yeah. Oh, i've got a funny little addition to that story i wasn't going to tell the mel books we thing but there's one funny thing that happened. i was playing in the south of france with ali amran a berber artist i was producing from algeria I, after the concert i came off stage and this this german guy came up to me 
He said, are you Chris Burkett? I said, yeah. He said, uh, hey, you produced that Mel Brooks record, the Hitler rap, mm-hmm. didn't you? And I, he was looking at me, and I, oh, God, he's going to thump me. You know? mm. I thought maybe he was a Nazi party guy or something. Yeah. <laughs> he just, he came over and he flung his arms around me. He said, I want to, I want to thank you. He said, when that record came out, it's the first time us young Germans could laugh about Zavor. Hmm. It's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so that it's, is cool. Yeah, it's really good. So it shows the healing power of music. Eh? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really, really good. So, yeah, so I digressed a little bit there, but, um, so yeah, the Buffy, I've made five albums with Buffy now and it's, um, she's still out there rocking away. She's mm-hmm. 78, promoting, uh, medicine songs. Mm-hmm. The new album we did, the last one. Uh, there's a really, it's a really strong track on that called The War Racket, mm-hmm. which I recommend you. Google it. It's a video. It's an animated video put together by Kurt Swinghammer. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. He, Kurt just took one photograph of Buffy and made the whole video up from that. From that, animated it around her. Wow, cool. Check it out. It's really good. I'll have a look. The at words it, yeah. are really strong. It's about. It's about truth. You know, all Buffy songs are about truth. Mm-hmm. It's about corporate greed and how war is so profitable to just a greedy few. You know. Yeah. And uh, it's a strong message, and it's had a. Almost a million views now, I think, on the YouTube. But it's uh, it's you know it's worth worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, I definitely will. Okay, last song, Mr. Burkett. This is Da-da-da-da. by Chris Burkett. Yes, that's right. Thank it you. It is Be Creative. It's the <laughs> it's the 2019 remix. Well, I've got I've got a song on my new album, which I'm writing right now. It's, uh, it's called I'm a Big Fan of Myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not about it's not an egocentric song. It's about appreciating. The fact that we have this gift of life in us, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's, it's, that's what the, that song's about. But Be Creative is, um, is the title track of my debut album when I arrived in Canada. Mm-hmm. I never actually released the album. I did a soft release at the Hughes Room and, uh, that was, that was really good. And we'd filmed, shot some video of that concert. Uh, subsequently, a friend of mine, uh, Tom Omorion put, uh, filmed the Hamilton Performing Arts Ballet School kids. Uh, they actually, were dancing to the record so he, he filmed that put a really nice video together called be creative mm-hmm. and then uh got approached by a company called white lion uh his name's marcellus atkins and he discovered me through in fact just through my keyboard player um sherry talon she's um she's in my band and she she actually somebody contacted her for one of the tracks i've been writing with her we've got a project called the free spirits mm-hmm. so marcellus uh and his partner um Bruce Jackson, who runs Blast FM, it's a web radio company. They heard one of the tracks that I had written with Shari. They contacted her because they saw my name on her Reverb Nation page, mm-hmm. and they they wanted to contact me. So they, they they so they got me through that project. Okay. And then uh, so Marcellus just said, "We you know I'd like I'd love to release one of your tracks internationally. Wow. Uh, and put it on Blast FM, which has 1.5 billion." listeners worldwide and uh i said yeah let's do it i mean it's no i said it's never been released i own all the rights the problem is with me i don't put enough promotion into my own music i'm always producing other people mm-hmm. and i'm still doing so producing a lot of artists here in in toronto and yeah. uh, in canada in fact and uh, so i tend to put my always putting my stuff on the back shelf so i'm very grateful to have an opportunity of somebody putting my one of my songs out there and promoting it so that's uh that's out this month uh, so you know, just look out for it, and you know, please go on uh, Amazon and iTunes and all the other things, and Spotify, and mm-hmm. download a copy. Yeah, definitely. Every little bit helps. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you have got 
a boatload of stories, my friend. This has yes, uh, been a very interesting chat for me. Yeah, we're just taking the lid off. It's, uh, it's a lot more. <laughs> well, we'd love to get you back in for more stories. Yeah, I'd love to come back. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, thank you for uh, inviting me and bringing me to this lovely spoke club here in Toronto, which is very yeah, nice. Fun place. Very nice place, yeah. Fun little studio. I'm on, on the next podcast, I'm going to tell you about John Otway, but it's a big story and it involves the Beatles producer, George Martin. And mm. It's a really good story, but I won't go into that one on this one. It's a, you have to wait for that one. Okay. Well, we will look forward to that next time. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Uh, can I just plug my website? And of course stuff? You can. Yeah. So look, um, um, I'm playing all the time in Toronto because mm-hmm. I love to play. If even there's just a dog there, Listening, I'll play. And that's what Sting told me once. He said, if it's a dog in the room listening to me, I'll do a concert. And that's just, I feel the same way. <laughs> so I, I play all over the place, it's sometimes in small bars. If you want information about my gigs, just go to chrisburkettmusic.ca. I'm a proud owner of a Canadian domain name. Great. And that, I always put my gigs up there and you know, so you can check out where, I, where I'm at. And I do songwriting workshops and all sorts of stuff. So look out for that too. Awesome. Sounds good. All right, my friend, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Chris Burkett. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>